Thankful for the opportunity to preach, Dr. Allen. Uh, it's always an honor and, and uh, properly frightening to do so. Um, pray with me. Lord God, bless this theological meal that we are about to partake of. We ask that you would uh, nourish our souls through it. Um, we're eternal beings and we recognize that we need help to hear and, and certainly help to obey. Help us. In Jesus' name, amen. Do you believe that God still saves people? Do you believe that God still saves people? Um, you may think that I've just kind of downgraded the way I think about intros by asking such a, a simple question like that, and maybe I have, but I, I am curious if um, you really, really, down to the guts of you, um, bones and marrow, like you really still believe this. Um, let's apply a little bit of an acid test to see if, if you actually do. Uh, you still believe that God saves. I'm going to ask you a question to help. The moment you heard Kanye West had become a Christian, what did you think? <laughs> not, a helpful, not a helpful acid test for some, but it's the one I've got, so we're going to keep moving with it. Uh, did, you think, did you think fact or fiction? Whatever your answer is to that question is probably a good indicator, not, not a, a fail-proof, obviously. Uh, but it's a good indicator on how strong you may believe Jesus really can change anybody's life. And to be clear, just to clear up some things, I'm not actually asking you whether you think West is a Christian today. That's a different question. What I'm asking is when that kind of hit your ears or you read it, um, what happened in your heart at that moment? Did, did you think fact or fiction? Um, there's a second kind of follow-up uh, person that I could ask about, okay? Just to uh, maybe this one will catch you, but, but maybe not. We'll see. Um, the same thing could famously be asked or, or was rumored about Justin Bieber as well, right? That he had become a Christian. And so I ask you the same question. When you first heard that, what popped into your heart, into your mind? Did you, did you just think, no, nah, that's not, no, not happening. Uh, not possible, not likely. Um, if you read your Bible really closely, uh, Bieber and West are the exact kind of people God does save. Think about Moses as a murderer fleeing from Egypt. Uh, think of Paul violently assaulting Christians, uh, if not outright murdering them. And, and then God saves them. And then amazingly, in their case, puts them into ministry. West, uh, in, in my thinking, the most surprising possibility is not whether or not West was a Christian whenever he, he came out with Jesus as King, but rather that uh, Kenny G was on the on the the CD uh, on the album. I was just like, okay, I don't know what that moves about, but um, so was your first inclination to pray for Kanye in the middle of that? Maybe, maybe, just maybe that he had become a son of Abraham as well. That that the Salvation of God had visited the West House. Was that your response or was it something else? Was it to, to question? I just think that's a helpful thought uh, as we read our text today and we engage with this particular figure. 
and, and the likelihood or unlikelihood that he would be someone that God would save. So turn to 2 Kings chapter 5. 2 Kings chapter 5. This is the story of Naaman. We're going to cover the whole chapter and we'll move quickly. And I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's 27 verses. Um, but what I want you to do is I really want you to hang in the curves of each one of these verses because we can't deal with each one of them in uh, a lot of space, okay? So uh, I'm going to read it. You need to really track along with me so you understand the context of what's happening as I'm referring to it throughout. Second Kings chapter 5. Naaman, commander of the army for the king of Aram, was a man important to his master and highly regarded because through him, the Lord, Yahweh, had given victory to Aram. The man was a valiant warrior, but he had a skin disease. Aram had gone on raids and brought back from the land of Israel a young girl who served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his skin disease. So Naaman went and told his master what the girl from the land of Israel had said. Therefore, the king of Aram said, go, and I will send a letter with you to the king of Israel. So he went and took with him 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. He brought the letter to the king of Israel, and it read, When this letter comes to you, note that I have sent you my servant Naaman for you to cure him of his skin disease. When the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and asked, Am I God? killing and giving life, that this man expects me to cure a man of his, skin, of his skin disease? Recognize it. He is only picking a fight with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent a message to the king. Why have you torn your clothes? Have him come to me and he will know there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood in the door at the door of Elisha's house. Then Elisha sent him a messenger who said, go wash seven times in the Jordan and your skin will be restored and you will be clean. Won't spend much time on this, but we know Elisha was a Baptist. Amen. Moving on. Verse 11, but Naaman got angry and left saying, I was telling myself he will surely come out, stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the skin disease. Aren't Abana and uh, Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be clean? So he turned and left in a rage. But his servants approached and said to him, my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you have would you not have done it? How much more should you do it when he, tells you only, when he only tells you, wash and be clean? So Naaman went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, according to the command of the man of God. Then his skin was restored and became like the skin of a small boy, and he was clean. Then Naaman and his whole company went back to the man of God, stood before him and declared, I know there's no God in the whole world 
except in Israel. Therefore, please accept a gift from your servant. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives in whose presence I stand, I will not accept it. Naaman urged him to accept it, but he refused. Naaman responded, if not, please let your servant be given as much soil as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will no longer offer a burnt offering or a sacrifice to any other God but the Lord. However, in a particular matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master, the king of Aram, goes into the temple of Ramon to bow and worship while he is leaning on my arm, and I have to bow in the temple of Ramon, when I bow in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. So he, Elisha, said to him, go in peace. After Naaman had traveled a short distance from Elisha, Gehazi, the attendant of Elisha, the man of God, thought, my master has let this Aramean Naaman off lightly by not accepting from him what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi pursued Naaman. When Naaman saw someone running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and asked, is everything all right? Gehazi said, it's all right. My master has sent me to say, I have just now discovered that two young men from the sons of the prophets have come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give me 75 pounds of silver and two sets of clothing. But Naaman insisted, please accept 150 pounds. He urged Gehazi and then packed 150 pounds of silver in two bags and two sets of clothing. Naaman gave them to the two of his attendants who carried them ahead of Gehazi. When Gehazi came to the hill, he took the gifts from them and deposited them in the house. Then he dismissed the men and they left. Gehazi came and stood by his master. Where did you go, Gehazi? Elisha asked him. He replied, uh, your servant didn't go anywhere. And my heart didn't go when the man got down from his chariot to meet you. Is this a time to accept silver and clothing, olive orchards and vineyards, flocks and herds and male and female slaves? Therefore, Naaman's skin disease will cling to you and your descendants forever. So Gehazi went out from his presence, diseased, resembling snow. The big idea, the transcendent meaning, if you will, that really pops off the pages of this narrative, why it seems to be in the Bible, um, could be summarized in, in this statement. This is my attempt at giving you just the whole. God's healing and mercy and salvation are given to awaken us to his divine nature and that he is a global God. God's healing and mercy and salvation are given to awaken us to his divine nature and that he is a global God. And I'm taking this principally from verses 3, 8, and 15. Um, and, and just to reiterate a couple things there so you recognize where um, the thrust of this passage is coming from, that, that everything kind of gets anchored around these three verses. You have the, the slave girl who says, if only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria. And then look at verse eight, meaning that he would be healed, right? That, that's, her, that's her logic. And then verse eight, Elisha responds to the king, why have you torn your clothes? Have him come to me and he will know there is a prophet in Israel. And then look at verse 15, Naaman is healed 
And he comes back with everyone and he says, I know there's no God in the whole world except in Israel. This is, uh, as I said, just the, the, the whole gravity of the passage vacuums in this direction about this idea of there is a prophet in Israel and Elisha is that one who is representative um, of the Lord. Our time together in this passage is really gonna be governed by uh, three different personalized and, and applicational meditations. So here's the first one. Um, we've all played Naaman. We've all played Naaman. And this comes from verses one through 19. To our uh, modern sensibilities, Naaman strikes us, he strikes me, uh, as one of the most cancelable figures in the Bible in the way that we think of, of canceling. So many reasons to stop God in his tracks and go, this isn't the guy that you want to give mercy to. I mean, he's a scoundrel. You, you do not want to give mercy to this man. So we could count them. There's, there's seven plus, but, but how shall we cancel Naaman? Let, let us count the ways, okay? So let's, let's think about him. First off, Naaman is neck deep in slave trafficking, if not all out human trafficking in the way that we would kind of conceive of it now. Look at verse two. Aram had gone on raids and brought back from the land of Israel a young girl who served Naaman's wife. Naaman is a leader. He, he's the lead strategist and commander leading the Aramean army, even by extension on raids into Israel and other surrounding peoples, it would seem. Why? To obtain humans and others seemed to be commodities in their thinking. Uh, we don't want to church this up too much. This is what it would seem to be. This, this would be what we consider in some degree to be like human trafficking in, in our era. These women and children are obtained on these raids. They're ripped from their families, forced into horrendous conditions and lost to history to everyone except the Lord. This is what we're hearing. This isn't the main point of this passage, but it is the clear backdrop of, of what's happening. So right out of the gate, we have a horrendous reason to, to cancel Naaman, right? That, that he is not an object worthy of God's salvation in any way. Second one, he was angry with God's messenger, uh, nearly rejecting God's healing. Um, you could say pretty easily, Naaman is very entitled, okay? Verse nine through 11 reads, so Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house then Elisha sent his, him a messenger who said, go wash seven times in the Jordan and your skin will be restored and you will be clean. Look at verse 11. But Naaman got angry and left. He's, he's saying, I, I was telling myself he will surely do something great. I thought at least he'd come see me, but he's gonna send a messenger. So he's entitled. Um, he's angry with God. Uh, angry with God, entitled, you're canceled, right? Um, that, that, that's how we would think about him. Third reason, Naaman is powerful. Naaman is powerful. And you know that, you know our era. I mean, we are suspicious of powerful people today. I don't like the smell of it. It's powerful. You know, uh, he makes decisions. Rich CEO type, right? Sitting above somewhere in a high rise, making money moves. Like this is who we, we do not care for this person. And yet here he is. In scripture, he is the guy you love to hate. Um, look at verse one. Naaman, commander of the army for the king of Aram, was a man important to his master and highly regarded. 
Think of all the money and the clout he brings. Look at verse, four, verse five. He's on the inner ring with, this, uh, with the king. He's in his top three for sure, right? And, and, and in our hearts, if you reckon with who this really is and you don't just glaze over the passage, right? This is the person we say, come on, come on, Naaman, you, you rich, powerful, pompous, impertinent piece of puff. You're done. I want nothing to do with you. Just on this reason alone, right? It doesn't even, not the other ones. I mean, we, this is the person we cancel, right? Fourth reason, look at verse 11. Naaman, if you, if you weren't already confused by him and frustrated, he, he's actually a health and wealth prosperity charismatic, okay? He thinks God is subject to the created world that he himself created. Like he doesn't, he doesn't quite get it. Naaman fails at this moment to grasp the creator-creature distinction the way we think of it. He doesn't get it. He thinks God's and, and healing is about earthly things like clean water, verse 12. You see where he, he goes, why would you send me over there? Like he, he, doesn't, he doesn't get it. He thinks God is kind of like a slightly more, as best I can tell, his experience would tell him God is kind of like Pharaoh, like he's just a a really big king or an emperor maybe. That, that's how he conceives of it. But what he does get is he gets power dynamics. He does understand that part, right? And he, he would, you would assume at his position. So what does Naaman understand? How does the world work? You perform duties and ascend the ladder. That's, that's how it works. But Naaman, in this story, he had run, as we can tell, headlong into a problem he couldn't fix with hard work and money. He couldn't get out. And it drives him uh, to seek answers. So we know we can cancel him again because he's got bad theology. That's a little closer to home for us. That's not just cultural, but it's like, yeah, get that stuff out of here. Right? So number five reason, Naaman has anger management problems. We would cancel him for that. Look at verse 12. Uh, this pagan, as, as we know him at the time, has such a rebel heart that he storms off. And he's seeking healing, but he storms off in front of God, God's prophet, the whole country, uh, steaming and storming, just fury, right? If anybody doesn't deserve to be healed, it's this guy. I mean, what a power-mongering, grotesque rebel of an image bearer. We, we, we do not like this kind of person. But verse 13 was really helpful, and just note his, his servants here. Uh, these peacemakers, and they're, they're really cool-headed, right? Um, they talk him down out of the rage cage and, and tell him to, to continue and proceed. Um, the sixth one, look at verse 13. Add to the list of his cancelable deeds that he's a reluctant believer. He's reluctant. Verse 13 teaches us that God's salvation is not by power or a show of might and firecrackers, a show, but it's by faith. We, we know this. All the odds are stacked against him, but he's got one thing going for him. He's got faith the size of a mustard seed. I do wonder, these servants, we don't have time to spend on them. I wonder if we'll see them in, in eternity, uh, in the new heavens and new earth. Look at verse 14. We see the crescendo point of the story. Naaman, against all odds, even though he's been canceled at least by us these six times, Shocker, 
And he believes Yahweh through this unseen man. All he had was a messenger. He believes. And just slow down for a second and imagine this moment. How ridiculous and how humbled must Naaman have felt? His whole life, money, power, all this stuff, and he is is at rock bottom. And he gets word, it doesn't matter what culture or what, like, go dip yourself in this river seven times and there's going to be a miracle. I mean, this is crazy. And so he goes, puts his foot in, gets down in the water. He doesn't get in once. I'm out. Like, you know, this is crazy. I'm, I'm leaving. Not twice, not three times, not four times, not five times. What was he thinking on the sixth dip? He was like, if this, oh, I'm going to look ridiculous. It's over for me. But he keeps going. He believed. And he gets in the seventh time and he's healed. There are two more cancelable offenses, though. Look at verses 15 through 16. Naaman has the sinful uh, dander to try to pay God for his healing. This is after, right? So if he hadn't already messed up enough with us, he's going to try to pay God, right? Um, So he's still confused. You don't deserve God's kindness, Naaman. You don't deserve that. What a theological clown. Cancel him, right? The final cancelable offense performed by Naaman, he walks away completely healed and completely unorthodox, right? Look at verse 18. In a particular matter, you notice the awkwardness of how this is phrased, okay? In a particular matter, verse 18, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master, the king of Aram, goes into the temple of Ramon uh, to bow in worship while he is leaning on my arm, and I have to bow in the temple of Ramon. When I bow in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. So Elisha said, go in peace. Well, a little syncretistic frolic never hurt anybody said no Christian ever, but this is what he's dealing with. He's a, you know, cancel him. He's he's like a religious sicko. Um, And yet Naaman, cloppity-clop, trots off with a healing and like a bandit with an eternity full of grace. He's, he does not have it all figured out, but he's like the Ethiopian eunuch. He's going back home, striding away, forgiven. I mean, he doesn't even know about the nine marks. <laughs> What's he going to do? He doesn't know about the Gospel Coalition website. All he's got is God. And it's enough for us at this stage just to recognize that and take to heart that we've all played, name it before, we have made massive mistakes. We have sinned against God. We've gotten it wrong, and yet God is good for it. Meditation two, we've all played Gehazi. We've all played Gehazi. Verses 20 to 27. Um, Oppositionally, Gehazi is on everybody's who's who of good people in, is, in Israel. He's nothing like Naaman. He's an up-and-coming prophet. He's top pick in the trading cards for prophets. Like, this is, this is who Gehazi is. Um, come to think of it, 
you're like Gehazi. He went to the finest Bible school in the land. We're told he's at the Elisha's school, the prophets. Not only that, up to this point in the story, in his narrative, he's humbly and faithfully dispatched his duties in ministry. I mean, he, he's zealous for the Lord. He's done well. Uh, if you think Elijah and then Elisha, he seems to be indicated to be, he's going to take over after Elijah. That would, that would make sense, literarily. Uh, that's not what happens. But up to this point, Gehazi has been Robin to Elisha's Batman. And Gehazi, he rode kind of shotgun just to give some of his story here. He's there in 2 Kings 4 when uh, Elisha raises the Shunammite woman's son to life. He's a part of that. He's the uncontested right-hand man of Elisha, and he's the polar opposite of Naaman. He is a good, good, good man and even minister up to this point. Keep going. I mean, he's really Navy SEALs. If you think about like, where is the kingdom of God at this point? Where is the gospel? Where are the promises of God, the kingdom? I mean, he's, you, you can't get much higher than him. Any up higher, it's, it's Elisha. Like these are the greatest men that are operating at this time. He's the guy, guy who can get it done. He probably had a nice haircut. Comes from the right family, serves soup at soup kitchens, voted against recreational marijuana in Missouri. This is Gehazi. And yet, he slipped up. He fell to temptation this once. Verse 27, God nails him to the wall. Verse 25 is eerily similar to God in the garden. Does God say, where are you, Adam? And through Elisha, God asks Gehazi, where have you been? What have you been doing? What does he do? He lies. He's scared. He's running. He lies again. Gehazi had lost sight of God's nature. He'd lost sight of the gospel. Why? Because he had his eye on gain. While this day, as Elisha saw, was a day to revel in the international scope of the gospel, in the the lavishness of the gospel, and and Gehazi misses that. One of the lost sheep of the nations had found his way home in the most unlikely and providential way, and Gehazi misses it. This was a day of healing and a day of worship and a day to bask in the glory of the merciful and benevolent God, but, but Gehazi doesn't see it that way at all. So he wanted to fluff his nest with feathers and and a little bit more padding. And in a different way, we're challenged by this text, uh, at least I am, to be tempted to um, judge God for being too harsh with his servants. It's too lavish with Naaman. It's too rough with Gehazi. I mean, what? we don't even know all the fine print, right, on how ministers are really supposed to get paid. I mean, Patreon accounts and Kickstarters and stuff. Like, what did he really do? Why, why, what was so wicked here? And he nails him to the wall. Be that as it may, what, what seems to be really clear, the author is trying to paint the zero as the hero and the hero as the zero. And these figures, Naaman and Gehazi, are in terms of kind of literary geometry on polar ends of each other. Uh, and they're painted as such. And one receives mercy and seems he shouldn't have, and the other receives uh, judgment, and, and we're kind of wondering why. 
or you should. So it's enough just in these two meditations to know and take to heart that that we're all tempted to play the role of Gehazi. We're all tempted to play the role of Naaman. We have played those roles, but but in Gehazi, he's sneaking around the fine print to the detriment of his own soul. And we find ourselves with him just flatly guilty and, and worthy of God's judgment. Here's the third meditation. We've all played, we've all tried to play the role of God and judge. We've all tried to play the role of God and judge, especially in this story. So here's what what I'm going to try to do is try to fix Naaman and fix Gehazi and and tie up some loose ends here for us. So first, let's look at Naaman. Look at verse 8. You can find, again, the point of the whole passage is indicated here. Um, If there's a prophet in Israel, then there is a God in Israel. That's the indication. And in verses 15... There's a God in Israel who is outside what what we see. This God in Israel isn't just located in Israel. He's outside and above and beyond just Israel. He's bigger than national and ethnic boundaries. Um, He's not bound to geography. He's not bound to time. He's not even bound to physical laws, apparently, with, with this physical healing. And in verse 15, Naaman gets right. What he does get right is that Yahweh is exclusively and solely God. There is no other. He gets that right. So in a sense, we are, of course, right to cancel Naaman. He's a mess. False forms of worship, born into the wrong family, power, privilege, abusive. It's important to note the gospel doesn't cancel Naaman. Didn't you need to know, I need to know, this morning, that God still saves Naamans. The gospel, God's mercy, is big enough to swallow up even our worst sins and what's really in our past. He's big enough. Naaman is the people's champion, not because he's like everybody else, but because he represents the unlikelies. Naaman is the champion for all of those of us with a past. Naaman shows us that God is the God of unlikelies, and and he still is. And Naaman only has this one thing going. He happens to possess by God's own kindness, God's own gift, a mustard seed's worth of heft of faith. That's all he's got. He thinks, if I get down in this water and baptize myself seven times by faith, then I might just be separated from my wretchedness. He believes. That's what he's got. You should be glad that God still saves Naamans. That's good news for you. Let's fix Gehazi. Try to tie up a few loose ends, straighten him out a bit. So Gehazi, as we saw and left him, he, he slipped up just this once, just one slip up, but God looks on the heart. I think that's part of it. We're supposed to see that, that God is perfect. He, he never fails to hit his mark. He doesn't um, misallocate like we can or misunderstand. He never fails, right? So he's looking on Gehazi's part, on his heart, and we can recognize and assume based on all of scripture uh, that he never misses, and that he's not overexerting power or, or, or destroying him in his judgment by stricking him with, with leprosy. But we can see that uh, he's looking on the heart. 
He's dabbling in sin, just like you. He's lurking in the shadows, just like you. What was going on in his heart before this, we don't know. He gets asked the hard question, he dodges it, right? Sin is as old as the garden, and Gehazi gets wrapped up in that. And he too, like uh, Naaman, walks away spiritually and physically altered by this event. The longer I like dwelled on this passage, there's a kind of grace in this leprosy. Gehazi too forever knew there was a God in Israel from a different side, but he, he knew. So we should note the sweetness of the deliverance of God in verses one through 14, the sweetness of it. And then also note the bitterness of our sin in verses 15 through 27. I was tempted like you to, to judge God for his kindness to, to Naaman and his harsh treatment of Gehazi. But as I kept reading, because we always want to be contextual, right? Turn over to the right, just a few pages over to 2 Kings 8. And what you'll notice in 2 Kings 8 is God wasn't done with Gehazi. 2 Kings 8, verses three through five. Keep your finger there in five. says, when the woman returned from the land of the Philistines at the end of the seven years, she went to appeal to the king for her house and field. The king had been speaking to Gehazi, the attendant of the man of God saying, Tell me all the great things Elisha has done. While he was telling the king how Elisha restored the dead son to life, the woman whose son he had restored to life came to appeal to the king for her house and field. So Gehazi said, my Lord, the king, this is the woman and this is the son Elisha restored. And, and on it goes. But, but you caught it, right? Gehazi has been reinstalled. God doesn't explicitly speak um, verbatim in, in uh, 2 Kings 5, but he is deafening in how he pervades this text. He's in every single word. And we ask the question, who is this God of Israel who has enough space in his gospel for Gehazi's and Naaman's? His ways are not our ways. His eyes see what we don't see. He looks on the heart. And his mercy for Naaman's and Gehazi's in this world is scandalous. It is. He's the God who forgives and rescues not just the prostitute, but the pimp. That's, that's what this story talks about. Not just the slave girl in this story, but the master as well. He forgives not just the abused, but also soccer moms prison inmates, murderers, and other likewise soiled and saintly figures. It's big enough. That's what the gospel is. So this is an inconvenient and costly gospel. This is an uncomfortable gospel. You and I are tempted to put God on the stand and cross-examine him, question him, ask things that we ought not ask of God because we can be frustrated at the scandal of grace. This story, I think, it's done it to me anyway, is, it's to make the gospel public domain again, that it belongs to everybody. Enough with your putting copyrights on it and your algorithms, trying to decide 
and selectively figure out who it's going to go to or who deserves to be saved. And we subtly do it. I mean, it's a blind spot in our minds, but, but it happens because we, we think, whether we're pride-stricken or depressed, what, whatever scale you, you know, fall on that, we think God didn't have to stoop quite as far to get me. And so we start applying our algorithms. The main point, as I said, is God's healing and mercy and salvation are given to awaken us to his divine nature and that he is a global God. My aim this morning uh, in explaining this text and, and preaching it was to try to break up the, the granite that's in your heart and in my heart. And what I sense often in uh, kind of evangelical Christendom um, is a move drawn to seeing the victim saved. And that is always good. Praise God for that. But it seems to be in stories like this that God often surprises us in scripture. He saves Naaman's. He saves the woman at the well. He comes after Zacchaeus. That's the gospel. That's the scandal. And I know, but I worry for you if you don't get this comprehensiveness of the gospel, um, that it's profligate in a sense. It's it's not selective. Secondly, I I see also in kind of evangelical Christendom an observable pattern to be shell-shocked, shell-shocked, when Gehazis go tumbling down the hill of unholiness. They just start sliding backwards and we can't quite figure out what happened. And, and I've found it stops Christians from bringing them the mercy of the gospel. That's, that's what I've seen. Most of all, when Gehazi needs it, right? Maybe the gospel that he himself or she preached or, or taught, and yet we, we, once they failed, we just don't, we, we don't know what to do with them anymore. So we treat them like Gehazi's leprosy instead of a person. Um, and so we want to go after them. We'd rather sweep them under the rug somewhere and not talk about it. It hurts too much to watch them fall. I, I think what's interesting to me is we know from Scripture that ministers, particularly you probably by default of being in this room, um, you have a target on your back. Satan has, I mean, he's got a target on your back. So we shouldn't be shell-shocked. We shouldn't be so surprised when he hits his mark every once in a while. That's what the gospel's for. It's big enough for that. In conclusion, I just want to reference a few people um, with not a lot of explanation. Augustine uh, was a womanizer. Paul was a bloody, violent, violent man before coming to Christ and being deployed by God in the ministry. Moses was a murderer, like a legit one. Um, And he eventually used those same murderous hands to write the first five books of your Bible. Don't be so surprised when sinners sin spectacularly. Don't be surprised when God saves Naaman's. Don't be surprised when Gehazi falls. And then the Lord actually picks him back up in some way. Do you still believe that God really saves people? If so, act like it. Let me pray. Lord, you're good and your mercies are new every morning. Help us to reckon with a scandalous gospel. You are precious to us. You're all we have. So I pray that a message like this, a person like Naaman and Gehazi and and this glorious, unnamed, precious slave girl who shared the gospel, 
would you make us see these people in our lives? Would we be gloriously connected to the openness of the gospel call? Every single one of us can grow in our personal evangelism and our willingness to share the gospel with people and and remove the algorithms off of our selectivity, remove uh, the lack of understanding that this is public domain. We worship you, we treasure you. In Jesus' name, amen.